Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hi everyone, welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. That was Sally with Out of the Pan, and she finished up with Backman Turner Overdrive with You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet. Out of the Pan is on every Sunday at midday and from 12 to 1, and Sally does a great job out of the pan, so make sure you keep listening. And yeah, this is Freedom of Species, my name's Trevor, and my co-host is Meg. Hello everyone. Yes, and uh, today we have a special show with a special guest today. Uh, We are talking about shelter medicine. You'll find out exactly what shelter medicine is and the massive ramifications it has on uh, animals that are going to the pound and receive uh, care at the pound, etc. And I just wanted to uh, do a quick bio of our guest today. So we have Dr. Anne Enright, who is coming to our show today and going to talk about shelter medicine. Anne graduated from Murdoch University in 2008 and has worked in private practice and shelters in Australia and the UK. Anne became hooked on shelter medicine many years ago after working at a cat shelter with an annual intake of 8,000 cats and kittens, which is huge. She's passionate about making a difference for abandoned and unwanted animals. Some of her favourite achievements are assisting shelters to improve operations with amazing financial and welfare outcomes, establishing multiple community veterinary clinics and co-founding special interest groups as a resource for disease management, shelter operations and networking opportunities. Currently, she's working with international groups to improve collaboration and knowledge sharing for animal welfare organisations worldwide. Recent global trends have highlighted a move away from traditional animal sheltering practices to building more community-focused resources and support programs. Determined to make a difference for the stray, abandoned and shelter animals, Anne completed a graduate certificate followed by a fellowship and master's in shelter medicine from the universities of Florida and Wisconsin. Welcome to the show, Anne. Lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Excellent. Yeah, Talking about it. one of your favourite subjects, my, I hear. My yes. pet topic. Absolutely. My pet topic. Um, so we may as well jump right into it. Um, so, and I hadn't actually heard of the term shelter medicine before we started talking. So do you mm. want to actually let us know what exactly shelter medicine is mm, and what it means? Sure. Yeah, shelter medicine is a, a relatively new sort of branch of uh, veterinary science. It's, it's part of veterinary science and it is a sort of a specialty branch which is gaining momentum um, and importance worldwide and it focuses on the treatment and how to care for the unwanted and stray and um, relinquished animals in shelters and pounds. It's mm. a different type of veterinary medicine to what people might be used to when they go um, to the local clinic, take their cat to the GP veterinary clinic because GP vets uh, tend to focus their efforts and their knowledge on one animal at a time like you know the client will come in with their animal they will be vaccinated or it's sick or it's you know whatever it's dealing with and they will focus on that Um, and they will deal with very complicated and complex cases but then the next animal that will come in will be a different thing where shelter vets need to do two things at the same time they need to focus on the health and the well-being of every individual animal in their care plus population health or you might have heard of it as herd health where you mm. also are responsible for the overall well-being of however many animals you have in your care on site. And that can be like a small shelter might have a thousand and larger shelters might have, you know, a lot more. So you, you're always concentrating on doing two things at once. And it's that challenge and the juggling of things that I absolutely love. 
That's fantastic. Now, you're a vet, aren't you? So you're yes. an actual vet as well as a, a shelter medicine advocate and with um, yes. qualifications in that uh, regard. Can you tell me how exactly you decided to pursue a career in this area? What made you pursue this particular area of interest? Of the shelter medicine? Yes. Yeah. Oh, I'm a, I'm a real cat fan. I've always loved cats. I'm, so I'm a, a, cat, a cat advocate as well. And um, it all started back when I was doing vet science and we, in our final year of vet science, we have a rotation group. A lot of the universities do it as well. We rotate through the different sections and we had a section where you rotated through animal welfare and I spent two weeks working at this um, cat shelter in Perth, which was um, what we were talking about earlier, what was mentioned earlier, the cat haven, with this annual intake of 8,000 cats. And I walked into that place. It was a ramshackle place full of, you know, the buildings added on as things, as they got the money and they needed things. And I just walked into this place and I just looked at what it was doing, thought, I have to work here. That was it. I just had to go there. And that's what I did. That was my first job out of uni, working there. Mm. And working there and then seeing what um, what they were trying to do and the restrictions that they had because they had no money, all the money that they got they had to fundraise for. So we had to do a lot of things on a shoestring budget like a lot of other places and that was what um, just drove me to decide that I wanted to do that. Can yeah. I ask about that shelter in particular? Like you mm. say 8,000 cats and kittens is the annual mm. intake, but mm. I guess just to give listeners an idea of what that means in real numbers or in like day to day. So how many cats would typically be there on any given day? A couple of hundred. A couple of hundred. And mm. how long would each cat normally stay there? What's the average length of their stay there? Um, it depended. Kittens would turn over really quickly uh, because everybody wanted a kitten. So kittens would come in and then they would be made available for adoption once they'd been checked and had their surgery and so forth. And they would go out possibly within a, a few days. A few days, yeah. right, yeah. And, but you would get the older cats or the, you know, the tabby cats, the one, all the black and white cats, the, you know, where there's lots of them, uh, 10-year-old cat, and they might hang around for, you know, quite some time. So some of the length, what we call it length of stay. Yeah. And so the length of stay for those ones would be pushed out to maybe a couple of months at times. Okay. Um, That's a significant time to be in the pound. And that would be at quite a significant cost to the councils that run it oh, and yeah. also uh, would probably lower the chances of that um, that particular cat being adopted out as well and increase their chance of being euthanised. Oh, absolutely. That was, yeah. I mean, th- that sadly that's what was happening back in um, those days back then when I first started at, at um, Cat Haven. If they hung around for too long, then they'd get sick because, you know, cats suffer from um, from stress very easily get stressed and they get upper respiratory infections which is like a head cold in sort of common terms so they get that it's highly infectious it spreads throughout all the others and they were being euthanized if they got you know sneezed or anything like that they would be euthanized mm. uh, to try and control disease um, and also oh, wow. because of numbers as well so the shorter the length of stay and the more proactive you are with implementing programs and so forth then um and the fewer numbers, obviously, that come in, which is the key, then mm. the better chance every animal has of getting a really positive outcome. And that's what we should be focusing on now, I believe. Absolutely. And that actually leads me into my next question. So uh, I am looking at this uh, mid-year report uh, from Queensland. Mm. Uh, it was done by uh, Jackie, uh, who was it for? Jackie um, Rand. Yeah, Jackie Rand. It's an absolutely astounding read. And the results that they've gotten from the the implementation of this uh, shelter medif- medicine philosophy within the community are, are absolutely astounding. We're looking at, I think it's like a, a here, it says here, uh, the data coming in through showing the marked impact on euthanasia uh, with these high-intensity desexing programs, which we'll talk about in a second, mm-hmm. is a 57 to 93% decrease in 18 to 24 months of um, if euthanasia uh, of these pound animals, which is an absolutely significant decrease. And it's and really, if we're talking about programs, that's actually quite a, a short amount of time to get such huge, uh, you know, huge decrease in numbers. Um, we, we were talking about the real-life outcomes of this good shelter management, uh, the broad-reaching and accessible desexing programs uh, and initiatives that assist at-risk families and individuals to obtain medical care for their animals. Can you maybe tell us how this plays into um, 
reducing the amount of animals actually coming into the shelter. And we we talked about this term called micro-targeting as well. Uh, So micro-targeting areas where the calls for cats were coming in the most and how that really um, assisted to get this high number with as as little effort as possible to get as much uh, in the way of reduction of shelter animals coming in and, and good animal care. Can you maybe speak on that? Oh, absolutely. That's that's exactly what we talk about. Um, I suppose I need to, I guess, point out first that the traditional ways that shelters and councils and pounds and so forth have been dealing with the cat problems, the overpopulation issues of um, owned and unowned cats, was that they would be trapped and that they would go to a shelter and then they'd usually, or to a pound or somewhere like that, and then they'd usually be euthanized. Um, sometimes they would be euthanised within a very short time of them arriving at those sorts of places. And these are perfectly healthy cats as well we're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And people's pets too because, you mm. know, they've not been microchipped or they've not been desexed. So there's no way of knowing who it belongs to. So it's important that, you know, that there's lots of opportunities for desexing and microchipping so that you can connect an owner with a, a stray cat. Um, and then they can be returned to their owners. So that's really important with that. And those animals that are microchipped or desexed do have a much better chance of, of survival. But for I don't know how many decades the practice has been, you you just randomly trap cats where there are problems, take them to the shelter, and then they just stay there, and then the shelter has to deal with it, and then they be euthanized. And so, and that's what people have been doing, and practices and governments and local governments that have been doing that for so long. And it's... Clearly, it's not working, right? And mm. we can see that every year the cats come in. Every year there's a huge kitten season. Um, and every year they come in and every year the euthanasia rates go up and it's just ridiculous. And so what what um, local councils and governments and, and communities and so forth, they need to look at implementing programs that will stop them coming in because the shelter needs to be mm. the last port of call yeah. from that. And you need to look at all the different types of opportunities that you can find in your community. And it will be different. It will, be, it will vary from one community to another what what opportunities you have because it will depend upon where you are and what you've got. But you need to look at all these opportunities and implement programs that will stop the animals b- being born to start with and then ending up in the shelter. Um what Jackie Rand has been focusing on as, and she had to go through a lot of loops and hoops to get it up and running, and she was a very committed and dedicated person to this sort of thing, and she has been looking at sort of the community, what they call community cats, and they are sometimes owned, sometimes unowned, but there will be people that will be looking after them, people that will be feeding them, and focusing on them. And the key here is that she's been showing that by desexing cats out in the community, it stops them breeding. And so therefore you've got fewer of them around to be a nuisance, to um, get into fights, to start howling and mating at three in the morning, to be scratching in someone's tomato plants, to be weeing on someone's front door, spraying and those sorts of things. So those sorts of problems are reduced. And she's shown that through um, desexing programs, subsidised desexing programs. And by the, the micro-targeting that she's talking about, and initially we were starting out by talking, saying that you just needed to use targeted desexing. So the areas where the problems are coming from, and councils and shelters and that should know this, they should know where the most complaint calls come from the residents they should know where the rangers go the most often to trap cats they should know where the highest number of cats are coming from it could be a suburb it could be two streets in a suburb it might be just one industrial site or whatever the situation is and it again will vary from council to council but they should know this because they're the ones that are going out there catching the cats they're the ones that are providing the traps to the um, to the residents to trap the cats and they're the ones that are paying the fee to the um, the pound or the shelter to drop the cat off. So they will be paying a certain amount per head and it can go up to $500. Some councils are paying $500 per head to take the cat into the pound and it may or may not make it out alive. And it's interesting because it's more like um, – so the pounds – so just to point out to people who might not be aware um, – 
local councils are the ones that uh, manage the uh, the pound structures. So they're the ones that employ the rangers. They're the ones that take the cats to the pounds, and they're the ones that give the funding for the animal management in the community. In this in this regard, they seem to be taking a very um, they seem to be taking the approach of they will only deal with it when the animal comes to the pound. So that's the that's the point where the council is starting to have their animal management of these animals. So there's no kind of – there's not really any uh, logical, sound, scientific analysis of where are these cats coming from, you know, how many cats are coming in, uh, how do we reduce that amount of cats and how also do we take better care of the cats of people who are at risk of families and individuals mm. who perhaps can't afford to give adequate medica- medical care, including desexing and microchipping. Um, so, you know, we have that problem, that issue of councils not looking to where we could – there's a saying of, you know, like we can keep dragging people out of the river, but we at some stage need to figure out why they're going into the river upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, and that, that whole issue is it's something that, that – the council doesn't seem to be addressing, but that this shelter medicine and shelter management is addressing. It's almost like looking at the ecology of companion animals and domesticated animals rather than simply looking at them as they come to the pound. Um, so that micro-targeting, I think you mentioned uh, before the show, you, you were, they were looking at door knocking. Yeah. So finding out uh, who in the community was looking after these cats that didn't actually have homes. They were just cats in in the community and who was taking care of them and working with them to help, you know, uh, capture and neuter, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, we we also talked about the fact that um, what we're not addressing is the accessibility and affordability of desexing, microchipping and medical care for people who are, you know, who, who cannot afford these things, who are at risk. In particular, you mentioned um, that there was a study um, by the uh, SPCA of, uh, I can't remember, in UK somewhere. Well, the Scottish SPCA. Yeah. Do you want to mm. talk about that and how that relates? Because it's not just the animals that are coming in. It's also the, the, the families of these animals who are doing it really tough in these times. Mm. Can you maybe speak a bit about that? Yeah, in, indeed I can. I mean, so I'll just point out that some councils are doing a really good job and there are other councils mm. that need to... Um, sort of look at what they've been doing and, and what their their practices that they have in place because some councils are trying and, and some uh, just need to get, I suppose, get started with that mm. uh, with that action there. Yes, with the Scottish SPCA, that was just an article that I was reading this morning, at least one does on a Sunday morning, um, that they had done a survey of um, a number of people there. I can't remember the exact figure that it was. It was some several hundred and they'd broken it into age brackets and that there were quite a number of people that were saying that with the financial crisis that's happening around the world and, you know, Australia is part of it as well, that their um, owners were commenting that their animals were likely going to be suffering because the owners are unable to provide as much care as what they had been able to provide in the past. So Because they're doing tough themselves as well. Indeed, yeah. because they're doing it tough themselves. So that includes maybe reducing the quality of their food or how often they're fed or the amount that they're fed or whether they need to go to the vet or not. If they, they might not take them to the vet because the vet, you know, fees are expensive and if they're doing it tough themselves, they can't be affording that and paying for other things. Um, so they've got that situation as well, which is where financial support or programs that provide financial assistance to these people are in a position to help them achieve, you know, help the owners achieve their goals and keep their pets too because people will will relinquish, I can't even say it now, will relinquish a pet um, if they can't afford to keep it because they just feel that the shelter is a better place. Which them. sometimes it isn't because no. it may not the cat may not find another home. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. I mean, the shelter should be kept for those animals that have no other option. I mean, you will you do need shelters, you do need pounds, but you don't need them to be the first port of call. Mm. They need to be the last port of call. It needs to be the last station on the train line, and all the other stations leading up to it need to have other other programs. And like what Jackie's been showing with her program there, and what Banu what we did at Banuel, Jenny uh, Cottrell, and so forth. Um, is that if you implement subsidised desexing programs, uh, and there are a number of clinics around Melbourne, you probably, I was looking, thinking about it this morning, and there's probably a ring of 
community clinics around Melbourne that's set up with cheaper desexing and microchipping costs to help people that are doing it tough as well. Mm. So, you know, if you look at it from the West, there's um, uh, Westside Desexing out there mm. in Sunshine. You know, their motto is to desex the West. If you look up north, up in um, Craigieburn, you've got SCAR, Second Chance Animal Rescue, Marissa de Batista up there. She is um, doing amazing things for people doing it tough. She has f- provides food banks and food pantries and so forth for people to come and collect pet food for their animals. If you swing around out to the east there, you've got Cat Protection Society. They've got reduced fees for desexing and microchipping. Come down into the southeast, you've got Meow um, Community Veterinary Clinic down there. Um, they also run specialised desexing programs and um, cheap, cheap options as well. Some of them, they do a lot of fundraising, like the community clinics will fundraise to get some money to be able to offer it at a cheaper rate. There is uh, occasionally some grants that people can apply for, the clinics, and mm. they can get funding to help support that as well. Um, there's Maneki Nico too. I just remembered them. You might have heard of them there um, yeah. in Preston there. She, uh, Samantha does some amazing things. She's always fundraising to try and help people and help other organisations. So there's like a mm. ring of um, community clinics and assistance around Melbourne, but they just need the financial support to help to, so it can be passed on to the to yeah, the individuals. and not just individual fundraising from these organisations, these small organisations. What we might do is we might go to a song break. Uh, we'll take mm. a bit of a break. Um, did you want to introduce the first song that we're going to? Uh, I believe this one's special to you and gives you a bit of a boost every morning. Is oh, that right? That's right. Yes. One of my favourite songs has become my mantra. It's by Bon Jovi and it's um, We Weren't Born to Follow. And I got onto that or some years ago and I... That song just pushes every button in my little head because it just tells me that you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again expecting change when you're not going to get it. So you you need to, to take a different approach and you need to try something different and you need to just think outside the box. And this song just plugs or all, all, pushes all those buttons. Cynical. This ain't about no apology 
Hi, I'm Robbie Thorpe. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison radio series, where we share the mic with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men and women in Victoria's prisons. Uh, We are such a huge representation in prison all over Australia. Statistically, it has to stop, and it's not going to stop while you're building more beds in a prison. It's a Band-Aid. What about beds outside? Tune in to 3CR during NAIDOC week at 11am each day from Monday the 3rd to Friday the 7th of July. We'll take you inside six Victorian prisons. Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, Barwon Prison, Fulham Correctional Centre, Loddon Prison, Marguerite Correctional Centre and Port Phillip Prison. To hear stories, songs, opinions and poems from the men and women inside while connecting with culture and community. The shows will be live on 3CR 855 on your AM dial. 3CR Digital and streaming via our website or the Community Radio Plus app. For more information, head to our website, 3cr.org.au backslash beyond the bars. Stay tuned, stay radical. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2023. To donate, call the station 03 9419 8377 or donate online, 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2023. Stay tuned, stay radical. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. Before the break, you heard We Weren't Born to Follow by Bon Jovi. And my name's Trevor. We've got Meg, Meg. with me. And yep. we're joined by Dr. Anne Enright. Hello. Yes, lovely we're to have talk- you on the show. Thank you very much. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do we want to talk about Radiothon? Really uh, just quickly, a quick plug yeah. about Radiothon. Uh, so uh, 3CR is currently raising $275,000 for a yearly budget. So that includes the entire running of the entire station. Uh, our, our aim uh, for us for Freedom of Species is 1200 And I believe, Trev, we don't exactly know the total because it's the weekend and we haven't tallied it all up. Um, we don't know the full total. But we think we're over $1,000 of our $1,200 budget. Yes. So we think that we've got less than $200 to go. So if you'd like to actually make a donation to get us over the line, you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Click on the donate online button and uh, make sure that you put Freedom of Species as the show that you want your donation to go to. And we thank you very much for everyone who's donated and everyone who will donate because it's fantastic. Yes, it's been great. Wonderful. So back to Dr. Anne Enright. Uh, We have been talking about shelter medicine, about uh, looking at the ins and outs of uh, getting the numbers of, uh, you know, euthanized animals down and looking at um, how do we take a more holistic approach and a more community approach to animal management uh, within at-risk communities where most of these animals are coming from. Uh, so, Anne, do you want to talk about, uh, I know that we've discussed before the show, the struggle of councils and to implement these kinds of programs and the barriers that they have, because it, once again, councils are the ones that run the the, uh, the structures of these animal management programs. Can you maybe speak on that and, and perhaps how we can get through that? Sure. Um, there's, there's lots of different options to sort of take into account in this situation, um, and like I've said before, some councils are better equipped and better motivated than others. Um, all council in Victoria, all councils have to have a domestic animal uh, management plan. They call it a damp plan, where they review that every few years, and in that they stipulate what they will be doing to try and improve or change their animal management strategies. Um, and every council has that. And um, different councils have different resources available to them and also their locations as well, like some of the city councils are smaller and more compact and then you get into the rural areas and they're larger and a lot more land to cover and, you know, there might less staff or something along those lines, which makes it dip more difficult Probably less of a budget because there's less people paying rates, et cetera, as well. And they're probably yeah. the ones that are going to have the more animals as compared to, say, mm, inner city. Possibly, yeah. Um, so I'm more, I'm much more familiar with like the um, the urban situation with that because you know mm-hmm. being in Melbourne and working with some of the different councils in Melbourne, but 
I suppose what they need to be considering is, like I was mentioning before, there's if they don't have their own pound, and some councils do, but if they contract their services to another pound, like so a shelter somewhere else that's it's not their facility, they'll pay a fee with that. Mm-hmm. And for every animal that goes in, dogs and cats, um, what what I think they need to think about is that by implementing some stopgap measures, some strategic measures like offering desexing, subsidised desexing or microtripping to reduce the time that an animal spends in the shelter and so forth, they're going to be saving themselves money mm. in that and they can then redirect that money and it will be more financially efficient for them to, and then they'll be able to use the finances that they save and then contribute it back towards sort of more programs that will be helping people that are needing this sort of service and this sort of assistance. So they'll be able to offer more um, subsidised desexing programs around or vouchers or those things for people. And and some councils Mm. do offer that. But, you know, they might just offer $50, a voucher for $50, which is better than nothing. But if the service costs $250, you know, somebody might still need to come up with 200 with that. And some people can afford it and some can't. So I think that they... Um, councils could be a little bit more strategic with how they're approaching their animal management. Um, again, if they use these community clinics that I mentioned before, like they're always trying to find partners to work with to um, implement more desexing programs and so that they reduce the number of animals going into shelters and reduce the, the euthanasia that's happening as well. And I think uh, you mentioned that some uh, some councils are paying up to $500 per animal that is being impounded. Uh, and mm. I think I was looking at some statistics or you might have mentioned some statistics where these implementing these programs could save almost half a million dollars a year uh, in regards to reducing that amount of, uh, you know, how, how much they were paying to these, um, these pounds to, to, to impound these animals. And then that money, which is a significant amount of money, mm. could be put into this micro-targeting, uh, you know, getting the animals and, and managing them before they come in and then also targeting these at-risk families who perhaps can't afford to um, to do all of these things that need to be done to, to reduce the, the animals being impounded and, and reduce the animals all up because there's a lot of, you know, unfortunately uh, mm. a, a lot of cats that aren't dissexed. Um, so yeah, it's it's quite interesting that we we have a situation where we're not we're not the councils aren't looking to implement these strategies. Do do they know the effectiveness of these strategies? Are they aware of them? Is there a reticence in actually implementing them because they don't know how effective they are, or is it just simply because of of council bureaucracy, as we know, is quite significant in a lot of councils and and is a barrier to implementing new strategies and policies, or just resistance to change in general? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, um, it could be. It could be a combination of bits and pieces of all of those things, depending upon where you are. The councils, um, I mean, I appreciate that they're under financial stress as well or financial constraints like everything and everyone else. Uh, They've got staffing issues also. I just think they need to be willing to look at the opportunity to try something different. And the councils that do embrace this sort of um, process and might be more aware of it, um, are the ones that are saving money. Uh, in that report by Jackie Rand, she was saying there that councils are starting to contact her to find out how they can actually, you know, use these processes to save money. And you'll find some councils, I've, there was one council that, um, that we were working with there and they just didn't want to talk to us when I was working at one of the community clinics there on trying to get them to subsidise some of the, the desexing procedures that were happening. Mm. Um, and I, So it sounds like maybe it's just you need to get their attention or you need to get it on the radar, so to speak, because they're just not even aware that it's an issue that could save them money. Like mm. thinking of their interests, you know what I mean? Even mm. forgetting about the animal side of things, but... For them not to be interested to save money means they just don't understand the issue or they don't they're not even aware of it, you know what I mean? Of how effective it is. Yeah, it could yeah. it could be something as simple as that. But I've had lots of meetings with um like the the animal management officers and like I do lots of presentations at conferences and so forth on this topic. Mm. And 
they've come up to me and they've said, this sounds like a great idea. Can you come and talk to our team? Absolutely. So we will go back and we'll talk to the team and to the um, animal management officers and they think it's a great thing. And then you, they'll get their boss in and then the boss will say, oh, I think it's a great thing as well. But then it doesn't get further up the tree for a reason. I don't know the reasons. Like right. they don't have the time, they don't have the money, you, you know, different different reasons, different um, councils, different um, situations, I suppose. Sounds like it's just not a priority. Like once it gets further up the chain, it just gets put in this too difficult basket or it's yeah. just not as important as other things they've got on their agenda and it, they just... It could be. I, I mean, I couldn't, can't comment completely on that, but it, it could be something like that. It's also change too. And, you know, people... Mm. I love change, um, but, but other people aren't that keen on change and so and also they turn over staff quite a lot you know like you'll get somebody that's really keen and committed to it and then they'll move on so they change staff mm. a lot as well then you've got to go back and you've got to start again at the right at the very start, right at the very trying start to and building it all up yeah. yeah and in the meantime you know kitten season's coming and then it's all of a sudden it's here and then it's you know bang oh we've got all these animals we don't know what to do with them yeah you know, it's interesting because um, we're talking about the financial aspect of it and with councils, et cetera, but we also talked um, before the show on the personal aspect mm. of of the uh, management of animals as they come into the pound and basically dealing with the, you know, to, 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 to do that phrase, that the people that are in the river just dragging them out and not finding out why they, they're falling in. Can you maybe give us some stories about um, the, the, the sort of the personal face of this tragedy it's a bit of a it's a disaster really because this really should be something that we can handle but it's not and there is a personal ramification to both the animals and the uh the humans that manage these animals can you maybe talk on that oh absolutely i can talk all day on that (laughs) (laughs) go ahead please (laughs) and i've i've been in that situation which is what when we were talking before i said that's what really got me into shelter medicine um, and that's just the, in summer, it's just horrible. If you're working in a um, a pound and the cats and the kittens just keep coming in. And like this one when I was in Western Australia and it was, um, it the cat haven was the pound for Perth. And we got the 8,000 cats coming in um, every year. And they'd just come in in crates and there'd be a dozen in a crate. There'd be one or two. They'd, they'd just keep coming in and coming in. And the euthanasia rate back then um was oh it was like 67 percent or something it was horrible but it oh, happened to be at the same time it was my first job out of uni and I didn't know any different um I went to a I was fortunate enough to go to a conference where I heard one of the top shelter medicine specialists in the world speaking and she was talking about this new program which she was um sort of promoting and it was just amazing and it just ticked all the boxes. And again, every single button in my head was just pressed by, by Dr. Julie Levy in talking about this program. Now she's from the University of Florida. And so I signed up for the program that afternoon. I got a pamphlet from her, signed up for it. And then that was when I became committed to change and learn as much as I could, learn as much as I could so that I could then introduce change in the shelters. And I took it back to Perth where we were and like, I was just euthanizing cats all day, every day when they came in. And the record that I had at the time was um, it was 96 cats in one day I euthanized. In a single day. 96 cats they'd come in. I can still see the day. And I was just surrounded by um, body bags on the floor because the freezers were full. And it was just horrific. And that was when I just thought there's just got to be another way. And that was when I started to look at doing all these other services and facilities and seeing what programs we could put in place to change that. And that takes a toll on people mentally, doesn't it? These people care about the animals and they care about their welfare. It's horrific. It it is horrific. And it... It really plays at you emotionally. Like, you know, you would, I would go home and I would just sit at the end of the table and I would just sort of sit there and stare in the wall. You know, it's just horrid. And it's particularly when I knew that there was, you know, a better option for that. And it's the people that, you know, like the people that have to put them down. It's the people that have to trap them and bring them in. It's the vets that have to, um, to kill them. It's the people that have to come and collect the body bags. It's the owners that come to collect their pet that's already been euthanized because it's not microchipped. All these sorts of things. It just ticks onto so many people. And mm. the emotional side of it is awful. 
with that, you know, mm. and there are vets that commit suicide over these sorts of things. It's a huge rate. It's for, yeah, yeah, it is. I the mean, mental health toll on vets is significant. Yeah, we've yeah. got one of the, um, you know, the, I wouldn't say one of the best suicide rates, but we have a noted suicide rate for yeah. that sort of situation. It's not just shelter workers, obviously, you know, vets in in the industry too, but. So the human impact on it is enormous. So you need to be everybody. It's it's not just the council's responsibility. It's not just the shelter worker's response. It's everybody needs to be looking for ways to improve how they can introduce packages and programs that can help, you know, deal with this. And, you know, also it extends to, um, you know, pets, uh, people who are homeless or um, at risk of being homeless I mean, there was one story I was telling you about too. I remember there was this man that brought his cat in um, and this was when I was in Melbourne Then he brought his cat in to be desexed and he, he just brought it in this broken down looking basket thing. He just lost his job. His marriage had just broken down and he bought this cat in. This cat had, was so special to him and he dropped the basket and the cat got out and it got in. We were working in portable facilities and so forth and it got in under the portables and this poor man, I... I can still see him. He just sort of sat down. He just put his hands in his head and he just sobbed. <laughs> it was, mm. And one of the animal attendants there, she was amazing. She just sat down with him. And we're crawling around on our bellies under these portables trying to catch this cat. Anyway, we did. We set a trap and we got the cat and we desexed the cat. And the call, um, when the um, the animal attendant who was sitting with him, she called him and said, we've got the cat and it's been desexed and you can come and collector he was so happy he had tears he was just so happy because that the cat was a part of his family yeah absolutely it was him it was it helped him with you know get through all those horrible things that had been happening to him in his life and um that was also um jenny cottrell was the the ranger out there at the time and she was the one who helped um to subsidise the desexing for him so that because he had no money he lost his job and everything and they that council Mm. paid for that yeah for mm. him so you know it's everybody that's got a pet's entitled to have a pet we just need to make sure that we've got the the policies procedures and the practices in place to provide the best opportunity to get the best outcome for everybody exactly it's the same as medicare and medical care for humans you know who who don't have the financial means um you know medical and and uh, you know reproductive care for animals uh, in families mm. Is also a, a, a social justice um, issue as well. Mm. So yeah, so we've talked about um, we talked about the fiscal uh, ramifications of the you know of implementing such programs with which have dramatic uh, lowering rates of uh, the the rate of euthanasia, uh, you know, increasing desexing, increasing microchipping, and providing medical care and micro targeting. We've talked about um, you know all of the the human side of it, etc. What we might do is go to another song break, and then afterwards we can have a talk about you know this this sort of program in australia what we need to do to increase the the rate of awareness of these programs in australia but we'll go to the next song um now the next song i believe is about a stray cat is that correct it's um by sweet oh that's, yes. yes what was the name of the song and can you tell us <laughs> the story behind little, it little willie yes uh, this is just a fun fact that i found out last week when i was looking for some you know songs that we could play and Sweet is a band, if you're old like me, then you will remember them back in 1973. Um, and th- what I just happened to be reading was that they made this song that's called Little Willie and it was about a stray cat that when they were practising their band work in, in the shed or the garage or something, the cat would turn up. And then when they'd stop playing, the cat would go. <laughs>
Topping up every now and then. Monty, Auntie. Thanks, Bob. Including your COVID protection. If you're an adult and it's been six months since you caught COVID or had a COVID jab, you can now top up with a free COVID 19 booster. It helps keep you and your mob protected from serious illness from COVID 19. So talk to your doctor or health worker about a free COVID 19 booster or visit health.gov.au forward slash top up to find out more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. This year's Eco-Socialism Conference, A World Beyond Capitalism, is on the first weekend of July. Activists from around the world will gather at Victorian Trades Hall to discuss the intersection between the ecological, economic and political crises of our time. The event is open to everyone, so come along and be part of the struggle for a better world. Find out more information on panels and speakers and get your tickets today at ecosocialism.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back to Freedom of Species. Before the break, you heard Sweet with Little Willie, which was about a cat, we just found out. Um, (laughs) My name's Trevor, this is Meg, and we've got (laughs) Anne Enright, Dr. Anne Enright, with us today. We've been talking about shelter medicine, which is part of looking after animals in shelters, mostly within Mm. councils and pounds. Yes, absolutely. So, and we've gone through uh, a number of different aspects, what shelter medicine is, what the ramifications are, what the obstacles to implementing such programs are. Now we want to talk about, um, you know, sort of sort of to end on a high note, you know, firstly, we uh, here in Australia, we're, we're a fair bit behind, say, the US in implementing this kind, these kinds of programs. As I as I understand, there's no actual university um a course, a learning course to do to actually become uh, a shelter medicine uh, mm. specialist. Uh, you have to actually go overseas to to get these qualifications, which I, I believe is yes. what you've done. Yes. To the States. Yes, yeah, mm. to only, the States. Only offered in America. Yes. Wow. What, yeah, I know, which is it's quite – I mean, obviously that means that we are behind because we don't have these edu- – I mean, the education and the qualification gaining is where we build up that process. So what do you think needs to be done? How do we raise awareness of um, these shelter medicine programs and initiatives and how do we get this to come to Australia to be implemented so we save these hundreds of thousands of animals' mm-hmm. lives? I suppose you, you could be looking at that from a number of fronts there and, and, and it needs to be a joint approach. There's no one there's no one answer to fix it. You know, you, you need to pull a lot of um, groups and organisations together and you need to attack it from a lot of different fronts, I feel. Mm. So it needs to be a joint effort. And, uh, like, I just feel like sometimes in Australia it's very much a silo effort. You've got all these mm. organisations trying to do really good things and some of them are doing really good things but they're they're like siloed they're not working in isolation no not no not as well as what they could be i don't feel that they're working together as well as what they could be 
And, you know, like we've been talking about how the councils should be um, doing more with their domestic animal management plans and they should be providing more subsidies, there should be more grants for that. But that's, you know, that's yes, the government needs to be, um, you know, keeping their, their finger on the pulse in this situation as well. The universities... Um, they do do rotations and so forth through shelters, and I know that, and I know that Melbourne Uni does. So this is veterinary medicine. Uh, veterinary you're medicine, yep. yes. Yeah. So you, you're needing to. Um, if I want to steal something, Julie Levy said, was that we're needing to create an army of shelter vets, um, and like America is probably the leading example of what of what we need to be aiming to be at because they have shelter medicine programs within their veterinary education schools. Um, the universities and so forth. So they have shoulder medicine programs there where it's actually part of the curriculum and they do learn different components of it and they approach like high volume spay neuter and so forth so that you get faster at it so that you can go through the numbers much quicker and like, and they would have spay neuter days and um, Florida is fantastic at doing that there. They've got this thing called cat operation, operation catnip they call it, where they get the veterinary students in and they will de-sex in a day three, four hundred cats. And That's amazing. You know, community cats as well. So they yeah. will do that. And mm. so, and it's a big program like that. Um, and I think we need to have more of that in Australia. We need to have more vets that want, that get exposure to veterinary students, that get exposure to shelter medicine so that they can appreciate what's involved and that it's not a second-rate you know, career option or any of that sort of thing. You can actually achieve great things for the community and the people in it by being more involved in that. So you've got that aspect as well. Um, just getting the word out about how financially, if you can be really strategic with your funding and so forth, and if you can make these programs and get them up and running uh, and so that you sort of, like you said, you know, you stop them being chucked into the river so that you don't have to pull them out of the river. So if you can take that approach, then you can redirect your funding and, so, mm. and you know, and that becomes like a community advantage. And mm. shelters sh then should become more of a resource hub rather than just a repository for unwanted animals. And so they, they've, they've got the resources and they can provide information and um, educate and engage and make it a big community activity. I think we, it needs to be tackled on a number of fronts. And we need yeah. to have more community desexing programs or, you know, TNR. I know TNR is illegal in, in, um, in Victoria and in Australia, but it needs to be thought about down the track because that's one of the key ways of stopping just stray cats. Yeah. It's been shown. So this is this has been fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Is there any way that our listeners can get in contact with you if they're interested in learning more about shelter medicine or assisting with building this network that can create this, uh, you know, these programs or implement these programs? How do they get in contact with you? Oh, sure. I've got a, an email address if people would like to email um, through. It's just anwright7 um, at gmail.com. Um, so that's, that's A-N-E-R-I-G-H-T. Seven A E N R A yeah. I can't even we'll, we'll pop name. Yeah. 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 So it's A N N. No, no, no. Just a, a oh A and then e N R I G H T. <laughs> it will be up on when we put yeah. it up online. We'll yeah. pop Anne's we email write, in. Absolutely. Sorry about that, everyone. <laughs> but yes, um, we'll put it on the um, online. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, time to wrap up. But thank you so much for um, all of that really helpful information. And I hope it's been really helpful for our listeners. And I hope that you can um, work towards bringing these uh, more of these programs in and, and saving all of these valuable lives that ju mm. you know, just get put in the pound and, and we just don't have any kind of strategy, any you know overall strategy. Mm. Thank you very much for coming on the yeah, show. Thank you. Oh, thank it's you. Wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's been a blast. It's been all great right. fun. Uh, so I think we're on to uh, well, the last part of our show. Thank you, everyone. And, uh, again, just really quickly, if you want to donate, um, 3cr.org.au forward slash donate for our Radiothon, uh, which is still on until the end of June. Make sure you put Freedom of Species. And we're going to go you to You can still our... donate after that. But oh, that's absolutely. But that's when our target That's when our target, yeah. We've, we've got we want to get our target before less June. less than a week to get – got till the end of the month to get our target of 1,200. Yep. So please help with that. Um, but, yeah, I think this last song is a joint – selection from Anne and Meg by the sound yeah, of it. Yeah, I love, I love this song. <laughs> <laughs> so Go what ahead. was the song? Oh, it's Cool for Cats and I think it's a UK Squeeze. Right. Yeah. And what made you choose it, Meg? 
Oh, I love Cool for Cats. And I know Anne gave me a list of uh, songs to shortlist. So I went, yeah, let's pick that one. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, everyone, for listening into the show. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. The Indians send signals from the rocks above the pass. The cowboys take position in the bushes and the grass. The score is with the corporal, she is tied against the tree. She doesn't mind the language, it's the beating she don't need. She lets loose all the horses when the corporal is asleep. And he wakes to find the fires dead and arrows in his axe. And Davy Crockett rides around and says it's cool for cats, it's cool for cats. The Sweeney's doing 90 cause they've got nowhere to go They get a gang of villains in a shed up at Heathrow They're counting out the fivers when the handcuffs lock again In and out I once were with the numbers on their names It's funny how the missus always looks a bleeding same And meanwhile at the station there's a couple of likely lads Who swear like as your father and they're very cool for cats They're cool for cats the mood a little, I've been posing down the pub I'm seeing my reflection, I'm looking slightly rough I fancy this, I fancy that, I wanna be so flash I give a little muscle and I spend a little cash But all I get is bitter and a nasty little rash And by the time I'm sober I've forgotten what I've had And everybody tells me that it's cool to be a cat Cool for cats listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.